This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Welcome to another episode of Star Stuff. This is Cody Half Moon, and today we are joined by Maddie Mooney. Hello. And Haley Osborne. Hi. And we have Kyler today. Dr. Kyler, he works here at Lowell Observatory. He oversees the management of um, Lowell's science telescopes and related equipment while actively pursuing both observational and instrumentation research. He also received his PhD from the University of California, Irvine in 2007, where he focused on the study of high-energy neutrinos from gamma-ray bursts using the Amanda and Ice Cube detectors at the South Pole. He's worked on too many incredible projects to name all of them in the time that we have today. But just to name one, he worked at the Australian Astronomical Observatory, or the AAO, in Sydney, Australia, where he was the project scientist and project manager for the Taipan and Manifest instruments. Should I should I say good day, mates? I guess. Good day. <laughs> good day. Not from Australia anymore. <laughs> My questions start with, what's a high-energy neutrino? What's a gamma-ray burst? What's Amanda? What's an ice cube detector? I do know what the South Pole is. So uh, <laughs> there are so many things here I really don't understand. Um, but one thing I want to focus on today is dark energy, um, which I understand, Kyler, that's different than dark matter. Yeah, there are two different things. Dark energy got its name because actually dark matter came first. That had been hypothesized and actually the effects of it had been observed for decades. We don't know what it is. It, it's, it doesn't put out light like stars and, and um, people. Um, it's not normal matter. So we know it's something that's out there, but we can't see it. So we call it dark matter. Dark energy is something else that's out there. We don't know what it is. And scientists are not the most creative folks. We already had the name dark matter. So we thought, eh, we'll call it dark energy. That's kind of spooky that there's just a whole bunch of stuff out there and you're like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it is, what is it, 97% of the universe, we don't know what it is. That's terrifying. That's absolutely horrifying. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Sweet dreams. Dark energy is 70-something percent of the universe. Dark matter is like 20%. And the, all of us, all the stars, all the planets, less than 10%, only a couple of percent of what's actually in the universe. So you can't see it because we don't have the cones in our eyes to see it, or it's invisible? It's, it's Yeah, it's effectively invisible. So dark matter and dark energy don't put out light in the same way, like I said, that a star does. And we see our rods and our cones in our eyes see photons, and that those are particles of light. And those uh, um, dark matter and dark energy don't interact. Basically, they don't use the electromagnetic force. They're, they're observable by their effects from gravity, but... The electromagnetic force is what what light is made out of, and they, so they don't create light, basically. We don't see them. The way we see dark energy in particular is, like I said, through gravity, um, and we know it's out there because we're seeing, uh, starting with the Big Bang, the universe expanded outward, starting, I'm using in the loose term, because there's um, particle physics that happens even before the Big Bang that we aren't going to get into right now but we see the universe expanding and we would think that gravity would pull everything back together so it'd expand and then it'd come back together because of the gravity but it's actually not only expanding but expanding faster and faster 
So we're getting acceleration of the expansion. And that is this sort of anti-gravity type effect. It's what we call dark energy. Um, I guess that's more professional sounding than WTF. <laughs> yeah. Even though WTF yeah. sounds a little more appropriate for what I'm feeling right now. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, Haley, your love of black holes, there might be some overlap here. I'm sure they're like completely different things, but we can't see them. And they're out there and scary. Dark and spooky and mysterious. Very spooky. Both things you can't see, but they are very different things. Like we know way more about black holes than we do about dark energy. Isn't that right, Kyler? Yeah. yeah, that's fair. So black holes are when you get something so massive, I guess you could have dark matter in there, but we know that normal matter can, can can condense down so much that light can't escape from it. So we can't see inside of a black hole, even though we may know that it's made up of probably normal matter. It's just so dense. Um, I mentioned the, the idea that gravity can bend light. So if you get something so massive, the light will actually bend all the way back around and it, it can't escape. It can't go outward. It'll just bend back around and get eaten by the black hole. Oh, is that why the black hole is in a ring? Because it's just circling around? I always thought it was just fishing out of the black hole. So what we're, what we're actually seeing, if um, when we see a ring around a black hole, we're not seeing the black hole itself. We're seeing the accretion disk. That is matter falling into the black hole. And it gets so much energy that particles are ramming into each other and letting out light. And we can see that because it's outside of the black hole. But it's as the matter is falling in, we're getting energy coming out. But before it crosses what's called the event horizon, where no light can get out, um, stuff outside of that can still escape. And that's what we're seeing. I don't like the name accretion circle or disc or whatever you said. <laughs> Not a fan of that term. So many terms in space I don't like. That's added to the list. Thank you. That, that, wasn't, that one wasn't up to me. That was around long before I got here. So talk to right. um, the astronomers from, I don't know, two generations back. Can yeah. we blame you anyway because you're nice and we like you? <laughs> it's Kyler's fault. It's Kyler's fault. Yeah, my bad. I didn't, I didn't mean to. All right. We'll blame Kevin because he's not here. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. So what's its role like in the universe? I feel like, I mean, Haley's probably the best one to ask questions because I feel like my questions are going to be pretty baseline. But you said that you can tell based on observations and you know it's different than dark matter. Right. How? So the difference between dark matter and dark energy or between dark matter and black holes? Um, dark matter and dark energy, since you only know right. it based on observations, right? Well, I right. guess that's everything in the universe. It's such a weird science. <laughs> so so we're, the, the thing is we can observe stars. We can't observe inside of black hole, but we can tell that it's there based on the effect of things around it. Like we can see stars orbiting in the center of our galaxy. We can't see what they're orbiting, but we know how massive it has to be. The only thing that could do that is a black hole. Hmm. So anything we can't see, we see it, we know about it by its effects on other things. So dark energy, like I said, we, we can see the expansion of the universe accelerating by these many, many different methods, but it's this acceleration, this anti-gravity sort of effect is what we're calling dark energy. We can see its effects on the matter, like I said before, the supernovae moving away from us at speeds that weren't expected. And that's how we know there's something else out there. And we did have a sort of a theoretical calculation of if every, if just empty space has what's called zero point energy, maybe that could do it. That's pushing. So the universe is just pushing out just because that's a property of space. Um, the only problem with that one is I think the initial calculations 
was something like 150 orders of magnitude off in the strength of dark energy. But there are much better calculations since, and I think we're only, I think we're only 40 orders of magnitude off now in what we think. If, if dark energy is zero point energy, just of empty space. So that's not quite right, but it's a lot better. We've only got you know, 39 orders of magnitude to go. The Big Bang is basically the expansion of the universe from a single dense point out into everything we see now. So the universe is expanding out. It's it's the expansion of space. It's not the expansion into something else that was already there, which is a bit mind-bending. But the idea is that the universe is expanding because gravity is an, an attractive force and only an attractive force, force you would expect gravity to be pulling everything back. So maybe there's enough initial explosion or whatever, that's not a, the perfect analogy, but useful for this purpose, to, to keep things pushing out. Maybe the Big Bang could over, overcome escape velocity of all the matter in the universe, but you would still see it slowing down, even if it could keep expanding. If it didn't explode hard enough, maybe everything would come back together because of gravity. But not only is it not coming back together, not only is the expansion not slowing, the expansion is speeding up. So there's some sort of anti-gravity force out there. And that's what we're calling dark energy. Anti-gravity force sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a Marvel gang. <laughs> right? It does. So, like, uh, I guess a concise way of putting it, are you saying, like, dark matter is more stuff and dark energy is more of, like, a force? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair way of putting it. I think particle physicists might quibble about, you know, what is a particle and stuff like that. But yeah, basically, dark matter is, is some particle out there that we haven't detected yet and just interacts in really funky ways with other things we do know. Dark energy is something else entirely. It might be, like I said, um, we tried to do calculations of maybe it's just the energy of empty space. It's, it's some other kind of thing out there. Energy, I think, is a, a useful term. Um, just given how we use the, the technical terms in physics. Gotcha. Cool, cool. And so um, your dark energy camera, is that uh, trying to like measure that force or what exactly is it trying to do? Yes. So we have, there can be just sort of a, a static dark energy if it's just constant throughout the universe. Um, and as there's more universe, as the universe expands, there's more of this dark energy. So that's why it's, we're getting more of it. But there could also be changes to it over time. That's a whole other thing. We're trying to measure both the time independent, just sort of the static dark energy content of the universe, and potentially how it would change over time. We don't do that by observing the dark energy directly. We do that by observing other things like supernovae, and the bending of light from uh, from gravitational lensing, or the the how matter like on on the scale of galaxies clusters on the sky and in in sort of three D space, and by that clustering we can tell if the universe is expanding faster now than it was before. Galax the separation average separation between galaxies is going to look different. That's sort of in a nutshell how we can see what dark energy is doing. And what is the like. Um, what are you hoping for in this research with your cool freaking dark energy camera, which is neat? So what we're trying to do is constrain what dark energy is. Um, there are lots of different theories out there. I mentioned the you know, vacuum energy of empty space. Um, that's one theory. So what we can do is if we figure out, oh, it's expanding at this rate, 
we can get rid of that theory and this other theory. And if it's changing in time, we can get rid of these other theories. So just sort of narrowing down the options of what it might be. Of course, theorists can be pretty creative folks and they can come up with more ideas. But for now, there's just sort of these set of ideas of what it might be. And really, at this stage, we can eliminate, we can say what it's not. And eventually we might narrow it down to, okay, it's this. Or if we know for certain that it's changing over time, that eliminates all the, the theories of, oh, it's just this one static thing, constant throughout all of space. And what's the craziest theory that you've heard of what dark energy is? Aliens, obviously. Um, it's aliens, right? The craziest theory, honestly, is that um, scientists are just wrong. It's not really dark energy. It's, you know, something else entirely. All of our theories, like general relativity is just wrong. Like, I don't, I don't buy that one. That's the one that I think is, um, if, what that's what's neat about the dark energy survey using the dark energy camera. We're not just using one method. We're using these four different methods. And if they came, all came up with different answers, then maybe we go back to the drawing board and say, hey, wait, maybe the assumptions that were baked into this, like general relativity, we got to look back at those. But the fact that all four methods are giving consistent answers tells us that's not likely to be the case. I mean, maybe there's some little bit of parameter space out there where somebody has a completely off the wall theory that looks like general relativity, but isn't, I mean, maybe, but, <laughs> but that's, I, I mean, general relativity seems to work pretty well, at least until you go all the way back to the very beginning of the universe. So follow-up question, what is, gen, you said general rel- relativity? Yeah. yeah so that? Einstein had sort of two separate theories. Um, one is called special relativity and um, the other is general relativity. So special relativity is just basically things moving relative to each other. You can't go faster than the speed of light. So everything is relative to that. So it's it's more the theory of absolute than, than relativity. I, I like to think of it as sort of the exact opposite, but who am I to question Einstein? I mean, he he's the one who came up with the name, I guess, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Thanks, Albert. Hey, you can take a hot take against Einstein. Get us yeah. those clicks. So instead of calling it relativity, I would call it absolutivity. It's there, there's the absolute speed limit of light, and that's it. And everything else is, well, okay, relative to that. Um, general relativity gets more into the the bending of space time and how uh, mass um, and energy are equivalent, and you can bend. Uh, space-time with mass, and so th- you're doing sort of different mathematical things with it. But the special relativity is, I guess, just a subset of the more general theory that, that Einstein came up with. So I, I have a question, writer to writer. Uh-huh. Obviously, you and I write incredibly different things, but um, what have you been writing most recently regarding... Um, the dark energy camera that uh, you've been working on. So in addition to trying to figure out what dark energy is, there happens to be just a lot of other stuff we can see because the dark energy survey is just looking through a quarter of this, the Southern hemisphere. So an eighth of the whole sky, it's just sur- was surveying that over and over and over. And there was a lot of fun stuff we saw, like we detected a new comet. Um, one of the uh, things that I've been working on most recently was uh, stellar streams. So these are 
this has really not much to do with dark energy at all, but it was it was a fun science topic that I got involved in when I was in Australia. So there are our theories of galaxy formation are you have um, basically it's a bit like building a house. You do sort of individual bricks to build up a wall and the, the roof and all that until you get the whole structure. So galaxies are made up of much smaller building blocks. In the case that I was interested in, these are dwarf galaxies, so much, much smaller galaxies, maybe 1% of the mass of the Milky Way that are falling into the Milky Way. And we can see these because they're being pulled apart by gravity. So instead of a whole galaxy falling in, it gets pulled out into a stream, a bit like spaghetti, um, due to the gravity of the Milky Way. So that's because the Milky Way is already here in large part, but there's more being added to it constantly. And it was much smaller in the past. But we can see these streams of stars that used to be galaxies or globular clusters, basically big chunks of hundreds or thousands of stars that are now being pulled apart. So we see them stretching all the way across the sky. And because the dark energy camera was looking at these large patches of sky, we could see many of these. And a few of them had been detected before by like the Sloan Sky Survey. It's Telescopes and instruments that were looking at large patches of the sky could see some of these, but the dark energy camera was much, much more sensitive, could see much fainter things. So we found like a dozen of these things, these stellar streams that nobody had seen before. Is that spaghettification? It's, it's very similar. So spaghettification is also the effects of gravity, tidal forces. Basically, if you're falling into a black hole. Haley's what, smiling right now, by the way. She's grinning. <laughs> that, that's, where, that's where spaghettification was mostly used is in the context of black holes. You get, if a person falls into a black hole, their feet are two meters closer than their head. So their feet will actually fall faster than their head. So you get spaghettified. And so, yes, it's it's the same, it's gravity doing the same thing on a very different scale. It's not a, you know, a person or a star being spaghettified, it's a whole galaxy. But it's, it is, yes, it's gravity doing that. That's exactly the same thing. So we saw these with the dark energy camera. And then when I was in Australia, we had a spectrograph that could look at 400 different stars at once, and its field of view, the, the, it matches the dark energy camera. So the telescope in Australia was basically the twin of the telescope in Chile where the dark energy camera is. Oh, so okay. Let's use this same field of view and let's see if we can pick out 400, 300 stars in this field of view and figure out which ones are part of this stream, map how they're moving, map their chemical elements and stuff like that, figure out what's going on with these streams. And what we can do with these then is if we have a stream on this side of the galaxy and a stream on the other side, we can sort of weigh the Milky Way by by the effects of its gravity on these stellar streams that are all sort of orbiting while they're falling into the, the Milky Way. I keep confusing dark energy. Does dark energy have any bearing on um, like our future as a species or our solar system or anything like that? Or is it a very distant observation? I want to gauge how scared I'm, I should be. So there are lots of other things that are going to happen first. Like the, the sun is going to vary its energy output on the billion year time scale. Um, and so that's going to, in a billion years, the oceans are all going to boil off. Fun. Um, so 
humans might be around, but Earth uh, as a habitable planet will not be. Dark energy is likely to change on the scale of billions of years, so probably not before Earth itself is gone. But we don't know what's happening with dark energy. If it's varying in time, it could change more rapidly in the future, and it could push things apart faster and faster and faster down to the scale of galaxies and solar systems and planets and atoms. It could rip atoms apart. If <laughs> we, don't, we don't know exactly how, we know how strong dark energy would have to be to do that. We're not sure if it's going to get there in the next, you know, 100 billion years. I highly recommend reading The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, by a friend of mine, Katie Mack. She's a uh, professor in North Carolina. She actually just moved from North Carolina, I think, to Toronto, the Perimeter Institute. But she wrote a wonderful book detailing uh, like five different ways that the universe could end. And one of them is this uh, dark energy takes over and just pulls everything apart um, sort of infinitely and even down to the level of individual atoms and people. I don't like it. <laughs> it's our cosmic destiny, Cody. Yeah, right. That, that's um, not even necessarily the scariest one. Oh, um, but, really? No, go on. Go on. What's the scariest one? Go, go, go read the book. Um, but one of them ah. is one. Um, there's the one that we won't see coming. So that's sort of comforting in a sense because we won't know any difference. We're just gone. Um, but that's... Um, Only dreams now. But but we don't know <laughs> if that's going to happen or not. We, we don't know what... Conditions in the so basically the idea is that the universe is only sorta stable, and if we can, the universe can find a lower energy state. Basically, the whole universe, as we know, just goes away into some different configuration. Um, we don't. So that's sort of possible from a particle physics sense and a, um, a thinking about the f- sort of fundamental energy levels. But I, I mean, I'm not really worried about that one. That's the scariest one in that it would sneak up on us. But that's the one we can also not really do anything about anyway. So, but yeah. that's later, later. Uh, we don't know. Oh, okay. Honestly, okay. either way, I mean, if it just out of out of nowhere, just ceasing to be, that doesn't sound so bad. I don't know. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we wouldn't know the difference, right? Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. Man, this just got nihilistic fast. <laughs> this expansion of, of uh, the universe until everything is pulled farther and farther apart um, was actually kind of contemplated in a, a science fiction style for a, sort of a science fiction theology sense. If any of you have read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, it's sort of kind of his picture of hell, where everyone is just sort of on their own and getting farther and farther apart. So if... Um, Love is relationship between people. Hell is the opposite of that. So everyone is just on their own and separating farther and farther apart. And and that's I I sort of I I can't I keep thinking of that when I think of this sort of the expansion of the universe forever and everyone getting farther and farther apart, even down to their individual constituent atoms. Jeez. So we went from nihilism to hell really quickly. Huh? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> these are like my favorite topics. So I'm yeah, I'm like I'm I'm not mad. I'm just oof. That's a that's a lot to take in. Um, for that one, the like energy taking over. Um, uh-huh. right now the universe is expanding at an exponential rate. So is that like that idea? Is that just continues to happen, or is there something else? So it would continue to happen and it would continue to go faster and faster and faster. Um, so we know that the the expansion of the universe is accelerating, but is it always going to accelerate? Is the acceleration going to ex- 
slow down? Is it going to get fast? So that that's the question is, what is it going to do? You know, this might even be, you know, 100 trillion years from now, we finally get to the, where things are moving fast enough that the, the energy is going to pull apart atoms. So I think that that time scale is, um, that is likely to be farther away, unless our observations of dark energy um, provide some significant surprises. But that's, that's my expectation is that's less likely given what we know about, even just what we know already about dark energy, but not, not entirely impossible, I would say. So significant surprises isn't going to be the name of your next book. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Maybe. Well, we'll see what what we discover in the universe in the next decade or two. Right. I think you should name it that, even if that's not what the book is about, because that yeah. would be surprise. Nice. It's not about surprises. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is the surprise. <laughs> so, um, hopefully, this happens a long, long time after we're all dead, just because it sounds confusing and, and weird. So speaking of time, though, I'd like to take a few minutes and talk about gravity and time because uh-huh. um, it says here on your little bio that you've done some research on gravity probing, which sounds uncomfortable, and I want some answers. Poke the gravity. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there are, there are people who do who focus on on general relativity and things like that. That's more what what is gravity? How does it affect the arrow of time? Um, ah, okay. So that is, um, and how that relates to entropy. And basically, one definition of time is just the direction in which entropy increases. Can you define entropy really quickly? So that is the amount of disorder in the universe so you can think of a you know a bookshelf with all the books nice and neat on the shelf and then when my kid gets at them they're sort of throwing it everywhere that's increasing entropy so we normally we experience time on sort of an intuitive level whereas entropy not so much but sort of from a physicist perspective entropy might be in a way the, the fundamental constituent of existence and time is defined relative to that. I recommend reading um, Sean Carroll's work. I don't, I'm not thinking of the name of his book off the top of my head, but he really thinks a lot about general relativity and space and what that means in terms of time. Um, I'm, I was much more uh, focused on it just in terms of its, its effect, um, how we measure gravity and the effects of dark energy and things Mm -hmm. like that so that's like i said not really my area of expertise and is that what you're you had um something that was released recently a paper that got a lot of media attention you're quite a celebrity right now uh what was that about um let's see there have been a couple so popular which one Um, i don't even know three years of research maybe or three years of observation was that in the title maybe right the the dark energy survey actually has finished its observations but we're still analyzing the data so we went from the first year after about three years of observing we released the first year of data because it took us some time to analyze and figure out what we were looking at and after six years, we weren't actually quite ready for the three years to reduce, release the three years of data. So that's sort of what's been coming out from the Dark Energy Survey collaboration, all the scientists working together on this. And that is um, sort of understanding after the first couple of years of our observations, 
what what are we what have we learned about dark energy and then there'll be sort of a final release of the data after of all six years of observations and that will be the most significant like i said earlier the constraints on what is dark energy we can measure its effect on the universe and so um astronomers and cosmologists have uh, conveniently come up with this parameter they call omega and that's it looks like a lowercase w in it's in the greek alphabet that's is it negative one so just in some units that is negative one is sort of exactly balancing the effects of gravity of the universe and we're we're sort of narrowing down it's minus one plus or minus 10% down to its minus one, plus or minus 5%, 3%, 1%. So we're just sort of get, making our error bars get smaller and smaller the more data we have and the better we understand what we're observing. And that it's not easy to sort of go from this negative one parameter to what does that look like in space, but it really is. We can calculate that from how are the supernova, uh, how are they different in distance from us how are the galaxies clumped in space? So we take these fundamental measurements, and then there's a lot of math that, honestly, even I'm a bit shaky on. And that tells us then what is dark energy doing in terms of these parameters? Um, is it negative one exactly? Is it changing in time? Stuff like that. The vacant look on my face right now must be Yeah, <laughs> I feel a migraine coming on. I heard percent, I heard omega, I heard math. Uh, I, I think I, we don't need to really get into the the details of the math. That, like I said, I'm yeah. shaky on. We can just talk about, in terms of the observables, we can observe how galaxies are clustering, and that can tell us what dark energy is doing and whether it's going to keep expanding, whether it's going to change, stuff like that. That's, that's sort of the punchline of what the dark energy survey is doing. Other, another fun a bit of research that came out of this, this other collaboration that spun off from the Dark Energy Survey, and that's the Southern Stellar Stream Spectroscopic Survey. <laughs> Wait, can you say that again? That's the one that is looking at these stellar streams that are being pulled into, into the Milky Way galaxy. And we first, like I said, we first detected these with the Dark Energy camera, but now we've got a whole other group that's observing these with like the Anglo-Australian Telescope, and I'm actually doing some observing with the Lowell Discovery Telescope for this as well. And the, oh, cool. the fun thing that we observed was a star that is moving at, let me get this right, I think it's about 1,800 kilometers per second. And this is this is the thing that got, I was on the front page of the um, Daily Sun. I've got the newspaper over there, but I don't need to go get it. Um, so this was basically measuring this star. We just happened to find it when we were searching the sky for stars that were part of these stellar streams. So we measure the velocity of these, like I said before, to weigh or to find the mass of the Milky Way. So some of these are moving at like, you know, 150 kilometers a second or whatever, which is still pretty darn fast. But then when we analyzed the observations, we said, wait a minute, this is moving you know, 10 or 15 times faster than that, what's going on? So we can look back and we can say, you know, uh, whatever, 5 million years ago, where was it? And it was exactly in the center of our galaxy. So what we think is it was a binary star. The black hole at the center of the galaxy grabbed its companion and slingshot this other star out. So basically it took all the energy um, of their orbit and give it to this star. You can think of sort of a slingshot that you're spinning around and then you let it go. Um, that's sort of what happened to the star. It was just going around at some 
you know, regular speed around its companion. And then the black hole grabbed the other thing and shot this one out. And that's how it got its speed of 1800 kilometers a second. So that was pretty exciting news. And that was, that was kind of a big deal um, when, when that result came out. And I want to know why so many astronomers love alliteration. My God, the Southern Stellar Stream. Is that just so you could call it S5? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's pretty cool. It sounds they cool. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Really quickly, I have a question for you. Yep. What are Starbugs? Because they sound really cute. I, I imagine like a sparkly bug or something. <laughs> I mentioned that we use the Anglo-Australian telescope with its, I can look at 400 stars at a time. So what that, that one does is it actually has fibers that it, it has a robot that picks them up and places them at the focal plane of the telescope. And it picks up maybe one every 10 seconds or so. So to do 400 of these, it'll take half an hour, 45 minutes, even if it does one every five seconds, it still takes tens of minutes. So you can't, for every field you want to observe, 400 stars at once is pretty efficient, but it still takes you a long time to put all those fibers in place. So what a Starbuck is, is that is an optical fiber. So we can uh, put it on in a telescope, get light down the fiber and send it to our digital camera or our spectrograph to look at the spectrum of light. But we we don't just always keep the fiber in the same place because when you look at different parts of the sky, you'll have stars in different places. So we stick an optical fiber in the center of um, what are coaxial piezo ceramic tubes. So that just means it's a ceramic tube. We stick the optical fiber in the middle of it, and the tube, the piezo part, means when you put an electrical current across it, it flexes and bends. So what that means is we can have each individual fiber in its own robot that walks on its own. So instead of one robot picking up one fiber at a time, we can have 400 separate robots all moving at the same time. So instead of taking 40 minutes to reconfigure all these fibers to look at the sky, we can do all of them at once, so it takes maybe five minutes. So we can, however many Starbucks we got, whether it's 50 or 500 or 5,000, we can do it all in five minutes. So it makes observing much, much more efficient. So it's a technology, Starbucks are a technology to move optical fibers around in a telescope. So we each fiber can get light from a different star, a different galaxy, but the the advantage of these is what's called massively multiplexing. So multiplexing just means we do more than one at the same time. So we can have 5,000 of these. So that's pretty massive. We can get a gigantic um, focal plane of a telescope, put you know hundreds or thousands of these on all at once, and we can observe much more efficiently because, as I said, we're, we can get a new um, new target every five minutes. So that's one of the new technologies that was developed the, at the Australian Astronomical Observatory to, to improve observing uh, with, with any telescope that we put these on. So that's, we had the Taipan instrument, which is, is going on one of the telescopes at the Anglo-Australian Observatory. Did you say Tide Pen? Taipan. Oh, Taipan. Taipan. Oh, Taipan. Okay, okay. Love Taipans. After yeah. <laughs> um, the Taipan snake, which is the most venomous 
um, snake on the planet. And of oh. course it's in Australia because everything in Australia wants to kill you. Yeah, it really um, does. Yeah, that's, that's a lot more rad than Tide Pen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's not, not the Tide Pod instrument. Yeah, um, <laughs> Don't, do not eat. So we've got uh, those in the instrument right now on the on the telescope at the Anglo-Australian Observatory, and it's it's actually uh, doing some observing already, I believe. Um, but that was a sort of a test for the manifest instrument. That is, we want to have thousands of these Starbucks uh, all at once on one of the biggest telescopes on the planet. That's going to be the Giant Magellan Telescope, um, and that's going to be a seven eight meter mirror so it's going to be effectively a 25 meter telescope and that's the the size of the the collecting area the glass that you use in the telescope and that is going to be using this next generation technology of starbucks so we can not only use the biggest telescope but we can observe you know thousands of these stars as efficiently as possible with as little downtime as possible between between observations so i i just have a quick clarifying question about starbucks and you might yep. have totally explained this already but this the Starbucks are the little robots that move? Yes, the Starbucks are the robots that carry the optical fiber that lets us observe. So each one has its own fiber. And then we have hundreds of these robots uh-huh. that let us do hundreds of these fibers on all different stars or galaxies at once. So they are like bugs. But they're not bugs in the stars. Oh, No, they're little robot bugs. That's better. This piezo ceramic, it's, it actually it sticks on a glass plate with vacuum and it walks around. And the sound uh-huh. it makes as the ceramic is driven um, up and down at a few hundred hertz, it sounds like a bug going bzzz. And what's fun is we can actually play music with them. If we drive it at 440 hertz, it plays an A note. So there's, uh, if you Google Starbucks Star Wars, I think it's on YouTube. We actually got him to play the Star Wars theme song. <laughs> we nice. should definitely post that on our socials. Yes, that sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. I love nerds. Oh, my God. <laughs> Me too. I can't believe we've already been talking for as long as we have because I feel like that was just a like fire through over like super shallow highlight of everything that you know would you be okay doing a chapter two of this podcast Absolutely. I, have, I have so many questions okay yeah, I got a lot more I could talk about too and as you see it goes by so quickly yes. <laughs> um but <laughs> thank you so much holy crap I have this is definitely one of the conversations we've had where I've had way more questions to ask you than I had when we started. Yeah, I would, I would love to answer more questions from you. Um, if you get people asking questions in response to the podcast, we can talk about those next time around. Absolutely. In fact, uh, we have a new hashtag, uh, hashtag ask star stuff. Each word is capitalized. And we are asking for people to send us a message on Instagram or Facebook, and we can uh, get those questions answered for you. So since we know now that uh, Kyler will be back for a second episode, if you guys have questions for him, uh, send them our way. I like hashtag WTF, but I'm not sure that's appropriate for a professional context, (laughs) so you know. It is on this podcast. (laughs) Hashtag WTF, welcome to Flagstaff. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Yeah, if you have any questions, um, yeah, tweet 
hashtag ask star stuff and you can find us on twitter at star stuff pod or you can find lols at uh at lol obs uh, thank you so much kyler thank you yeah i enjoyed it and we'll see you soon absolutely yeah, we're not done with you yet we're not done <laughs> <laughs> wonderful i look forward to it awesome this podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you.